Well, great to see you guys this morning. Our topic this morning, as you see on the paper, is the supremacy of Christ over politics. I feel like there's already maybe three strikes against me because it's early and we're talking about religion and politics. So here we go. In all honesty, I think this is really an important topic. It's sad that it's so hard for us to talk about it. We need to know and learn how to talk about it. If you think about just the events of the last week, we've watched as one party considers impeaching the president. The president accuses the former president of treason. Over the weekend, there's a raid that results in the death of a high-profile ISIS leader, and even that apparent victory stirred up a lot of political controversy. So we're living in this political atmosphere in America where things are becoming more and more hostile, and many of us wonder if there's any hope. Brothers, if we are hoping in Jesus Christ, there is always hope. And so this morning, if anything, I want to remind you of our hope. I think politics gets particularly heated because it intersects with a lot of things that we care deeply about, from freedom to our country, our principles, power, money, the future, the good life, our children. And so it shouldn't surprise us that when it comes to politics, many people are passionate, many people are afraid, many people are outraged, and some people just disengage. Issues are important, but I'm not really here to talk about issues this morning, and elections are important, but I'm not here to tell you how to vote. What I want to do is try to help us go a little bit deeper and see some of the dynamics in our heart as we think about our political engagement. So around PCPC, you'll often hear us talking, or if we're not talking, it's sort of what's behind the scenes. We care about worship, formation, and mission. We want you to be actively engaged in worshiping the Lord and being transformed into the image of Christ and being on His mission. So this morning, I want to consider how the supremacy of Christ informs our worship, our formation and mission, and what that has to do with our political engagement. We could spend a whole semester on this topic, so just realize that I can't scratch all the itches this morning. I hope, though, that this is helpful and brings some sanity to this area where it's really easy for us to lose our heads. So first, let's talk about worship and our political engagement, what or whom Are we worshiping? That's the question. I'll start with these psalms that you have on your handout. Psalm 103, 19. This is the bless the Lord, O my soul psalm. In Psalm 103, 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. And then in Psalm 115, the first nine verses, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. So as we think about what God's word is saying. The word is never confused about who is king. At the beginning, the Lord was the king of creation. He created a world and he put the first humans in a garden to rule and reign for him. Now, when Adam and Eve refused to submit to the Lord, the Lord didn't stop being king. 
But ever since the fall, we've suffered from a broken relationship with the king. Some of us live in fear of his judgment. Some of us live in ignorance of his identity. But we all, as sinners, unless we know Jesus, live in rejection of his kingship. So in his first coming, we, we saw the Lord coming as the king of redemption. And in his second coming, we'll see the Lord coming as the king of judgment and restoration. He will set everything right and he will make all things new. So the end of the story is God's people reigning with him in the new heavens and the new earth. The story is going somewhere. We need to remember that. So the Bible's never confused about who is king. Psalm 103 makes it crystal clear. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. So the supremacy of Christ over politics starts with this declaration that Christ is king. He alone is worthy of our ultimate allegiance and worship. So when it feels like the sky is falling and people are losing their minds, we can say, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So we start with worship because every human is a worshiper. The question is not, will we worship? It's what will we worship or whom will we worship? Psalm 115 reminds us with this vivid imagery of like a statue of an idol. If we don't worship the king, we will worship something else. And whether we worship a statue or a politician or anything else, the results are the same because we end up trusting in something that can't ultimately deliver on its promises. In Psalm 20 verse 7, we read, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Sort of political things of the time, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So we probably don't have chariots or horses, we have other things, but we can still place our trust in politics. And sooner or later, that trust betrays us. So we should ask this morning are we really trusting the king? Are we worshiping the king and seeking to live as citizens of his kingdom? If not, we're worshiping something else and we're on shaky ground. But if Christ is our king, we have a completely different foundation for our political engagement. And to understand this, all we need to do is compare Jesus to earthly kings and rulers. So politicians rule for a time, and then they get voted out or hit a term limit or die. Jesus is the eternal king. Politicians are imperfect in their character. Even the best of them will let us down in multiple ways. Jesus is perfect in his goodness and his righteousness. Politicians are limited in their power and wisdom. Jesus is omnipotent and omniscient. Politicians need our votes and support. Jesus is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us at all. Politicians tweak their platform every four years. Sometimes it feels like every four days. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Politicians tend to think about one country or party. Jesus is king of the whole earth, cares about renewing the whole creation. Politicians can change laws. Jesus can actually change hearts. Politicians are, when you think about it, really just powerless humans trying to gain power. Jesus is the all-powerful God who became powerless. And this is perhaps the most important thing to see about King Jesus, because in John 19, 19, we read, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And so our King 
is on a cross. He was on a cross. So remember, Jesus was offered political power on multiple occasions. People tried to make him king, and every time he refused, somehow he would slip away, and he would have driven a political strategist crazy. Jesus, you have the world literally eating out of your hand, and you're going to do what? I'm going to the cross. So what he told his apostles. And when our king goes to the cross, that changes everything. And it tells us a lot about the dynamics of the kingdom that he came to inaugurate. So one day political rivals, Pharisees and Herodians, stand around Jesus and they ask him about paying taxes. And they say, they're really trying to smoke him out because either way, he's going to be sort of upside down with one party or the other based on what they ask him. Are you going to go with the powers of this world and pay the tax? Are you going to be a revolutionary and not pay the tax? It's a no-win situation for Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't play their game. So he replies, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So Jesus wouldn't be confined to their two-party system. He didn't come to take sides. He actually came to take over, but in a way that none of us could have ever imagined. Because ultimately he won the victory not by being elected, but by being executed. If you don't think that changes the way we think about politics, I don't know what to tell you. If we're talking about the supremacy of Christ in all things, then politics is actually part of all things. Some of us think our political lives are like Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But like any other area, our political lives should reflect that we worship Christ. If Jesus is our king, we should have peace peace in the midst of all this madness because we know our king has come. His kingdom is already here. It's growing like a mustard seed. Sometimes it's hard to see, but it's happening. And the best is yet to come because our king is coming again. So do we have the peace and confidence of those who worship King Jesus? If Jesus is our king, we should also be engaged because this is his world. He created it. He cares about it. He's given us the task of cultivating it. So our political engagement should reflect his character and his care for the world. So if we worship Jesus, we should have this beautiful confidence that he's in control. And we should have this bold commitment to live as his people where he's planted us for the good of the world. But how do we do that? It's a big question. And so I want you to see there's a direct link between worship and formation. So let's turn our attention to formation and ask the question, who are we becoming? There was a day when a lawyer came to test Jesus with a question about the law. People are always trying to trap him. And that's a bad idea to try to trap Jesus. But Jesus boils it all down to this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So of course, Jesus gets it. What we love and worship always shapes who we become. So if we worship the Lord, if we love him supremely with everything we have, that's going to work itself out in our lives. And if we don't, that's going to work itself out in our lives. And as Jesus points out, it will be most obvious probably in a transformed love for our neighbor. So God's word has much to say about this change dynamic, you could call it. But let me try to summarize briefly from just one angle. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18 on your sheet. Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. 
He's saying formation is about being transformed into the image of the thing that captivates our attention. Paul is saying, Christian, with an unveiled face, you are beholding the glory of the Lord. And as that happens, you are being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. So we become like what we behold. So the question in formation, you could say, is what are we beholding? Where are we fixing our eyes? Remember what Psalm, 15, Psalm 115 said about idol worship? Those who worship idols become like them. So the person captivated by money is transformed, really, just into a life of greed more and more. The person captivated by sex is transformed into a life of sensual pleasure more and more. And the person captivated by Jesus is transformed into his image. When we love something, we build habits into our lives that reflect that. It's just what we do. So the runner runs, the musician practices, the lover loves. In the Christian life, we have these holy habits like worship and fellowship and study and prayer and fasting and solitude and service, and we could go on. But what happens is we behold the glory of the Lord and we say, I wanna live near that. So we orient our lives around these things that God has given us to make us more like Jesus. The question is, are we really worshiping the king if it never gets down into our daily habits? Now, in terms of politics, we need to think about the liturgies and the habits that are forming us politically. A liturgy could be watching cable news, political talk every night or looking at websites throughout the day. A liturgy could be venting our political frustration to our friends all the time. And I'm not saying that we should never do these things, but we should ask, am I more committed to the habits that are forming my faith or to the habits that are forming my politics? And then the question is, well, how would I know? So one measure is what I might call the non-negotiable test. If we want to know what we really value, look at what's non-negotiable in our lives. Do I know that I need the Lord? Is my relationship with the Lord so important that other things have to fall in line? Lord, today I'm going to be with you because it's the most important thing. Or are these holy habits just kind of hit or miss for me? Perhaps that steady diet of political talk at night is the non-negotiable. And again, I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad, but if that's our reality, we should be asking ourselves some hard questions. So here's another diagnostic. In his book, Jesus Outside the Line, Scott Sauls writes, we should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. I'll read it again. We should feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. Now, I know some of you don't like that, but think about it. If I'm a believer and I say that I feel more at home with someone who shares my political beliefs, but not my faith, than someone who shares my faith, but not my political beliefs, which identity has become primary and which has become secondary? If someone comes into a church, do we really want them to believe that becoming a Christian also means joining a particular political party? Isn't that just a new version of what the early church was doing and dealing with in terms of Jews and Gentiles? The the gospel was big enough to tear down the walls and unite those two groups transformed in Christ. Is the gospel big enough to tear down walls and unite Democrats and Republicans 
Jesus called, I think there's a reason, Jesus called a tax collector and a zealot to be among his 12 apostles. So if we're becoming more like Christ, we'll, be, we'll know it primarily in the way that we love those who are different from us. From what I can tell, news outlets are not interested in bringing enemies together for the purpose of reconciliation. If that ever happened, they wouldn't have a news program anymore. Think about it. News outlets are interested in entertaining us and actually keeping us outraged so we'll come back and watch so they can sell more ads. And I know that sounds negative, but just ask yourself, have you ever watched the news, turned it off, and then say, I feel compelled to go towards my political opponent and get to know them and understand them and love them? I'm guessing it's a no. But if we behold Jesus, what do we see? We see him moving towards us, his enemies. We see him loving us. We see him dying on a cross to make us his friends. And then he's inviting us to take up our cross and follow him. So worshiping Jesus means something, brothers. It it means we're called to follow him and become like him. It means this ongoing battle to kill sin in our lives and this ongoing struggle with the Spirit's help to grow in Christ, to become more like him. So in Galatians 5, 19 through 24, Paul talks about the works of the flesh on the one hand and the fruit of the Spirit on the other. Let me read this for you. Now the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." So the works of the flesh are what happens when we don't worship the king. We can see these things everywhere, but we can certainly see them in the political arena. Politicians getting caught up in sexual immorality. All of us, like Israel, struggling with political idols. We just need a king to make everything right. If we can just get the right person in there, fix everything. And the rest of Paul's list, much of it just sounds like a description of political discourse in our time. Enmity strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, and the like. So I know we can see this out there, but can we see it in here? Because pointing the finger doesn't do much good unless we turn and point it at ourselves. We need to see how the works of the flesh are active, can be active in our political engagement. How are we given to idolatry and anger and rivalry, and division. Think about it. If the fruit is the fruit of the Spirit, and only believers in Christ have the Spirit, how will the world see the fruit of the Spirit if Christians are living in the flesh? As the people of God engage in politics, the world should see the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control of Jesus Christ. If the world doesn't see that, we may still win political victories, but it could very well cost us the opportunity to be witnesses. So if America has a morality problem, I think we could all argue that we do. We're not going to make people good by passing better laws. Now, I know we want good laws. 
But biblically and otherwise, we know that laws have never changed a human heart. In uh, his book, To Change the World, just James Davison Hunter has one sentence that sort of got my attention this week. He says, there are no political solutions to the problems most people care about. Wow, that's a bold claim. But what would happen if we stopped turning to politics for the solution to all of our problems? We might see that this moment when many of our neighbors no longer share our values is an incredible opportunity for the church just like the way we responded to the tornado. Perhaps the politicians couldn't do that, but there was the church within hours, loving people. To be the church, we need to be transformed into the image of Christ and we need to be about his mission. So let's talk about mission and ask the question, for what are we living? If you look at Matthew 28, this is the great commission. Jesus is charged to his church before his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. So notice the kingly declaration, declaration, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's where we started. Jesus is the king. Right now, he is ruling all of heaven and earth. There's more to come, but it's not like his first coming was a failure, and now we're just hoping that he can do better next time. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So knowing that, Sharing that with us, he says, this is the mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The mission of a political party seems to start with winning elections and getting power and moving an agenda forward for America. But like we said, the party platform can be pretty fluid. What a political party is trying to accomplish from year to year changes with the blowing winds of culture. But the mission of God marches on, unchanging and relentless, And it's not necessarily about getting power because Jesus already has all the power. So with that power and authority, the risen Christ is commanding us to go and make disciples of all nations, to share the gospel in word and deed, to teach people everything Jesus has taught us about himself, to bring people in, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, to be witnesses to the reality of Christ's life and death and resurrection and reign, that he's the king. So that's a mission greater than America, but it's a mission that should bless America when the church is living as the church. And as we go, Jesus has promised to be with us always to the end of the age. So part of making disciples and being disciples is figuring out how we live in this country where the Lord has planted us. And I I think God's word has so much to say to us if we'll listen. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians 2. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. What Paul is saying is if we know Christ, we need to work out the implications of such a great salvation in every area. And that includes politics. So God is working in us, he says, so that we can work it out. So Paul commands us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. I sort of laughed yesterday thinking, what is politics without grumbling or disputing? (laughs) And I, I thought, I'm not sure, but the Lord is actually calling us to figure that out, to work that out. Because why? Because Paul wants us to be different. He wants us to be the children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Why? Because he wants us to shine like lights in the world. The world needs to see the beauty and goodness of Christ reflected in his people. 
And the world needs to see a church that's more captivated by Christ's love than political power. So recently I read Eric Metaxas's book, If You Can Keep It, is the title. Title comes from a moment in history when Benjamin Franklin walked out of the Constitutional Convention and a lady or a group of people asked him, so what kind of government do we have, a monarchy or a republic? And Franklin replied, a republic, if you can keep it, implying that the people are going to have to live up to that, have the virtue to govern themselves. But Metaxas tells another story that I've never heard, and it helped me to realize how close we were to not even having a republic to keep. And so it's March 16, 1783. It's about six months before the end of the Revolutionary War. George Washington is in his military headquarters along the Hudson River near Newburgh, New York. So this letter is circulating among his officers, and word of the letter comes to Washington. So the officers have a grievance. They've been serving in the army for years and years, and they've never been paid. So they're furious at Congress, and they're hatching a plan. They want to give Congress an ultimatum. Pay us, or you can figure out how to fight the British on your own. So the likely outcome will be a coup with George Washington as the leader, and this newborn country will be a military dictatorship, not a republic. Now, it's worth noting as you think about that, and that sounds shocking. How could anyone do that? There's nothing surprising about that idea in that time because that's basically the way the world had worked throughout history up to that point. A great general wins a military victory, and to the victor go the spoils. So George Washington hears what his officers are doing. Word of it finally comes to him, and how does he respond? Because in this moment when his political ambition could have pushed him to grab and keep power— he actually does something remarkable. So Metaxas writes, when Washington caught wind of it, he was shocked and furious. His own sense of virtue was such that for him, this proposal was offensive. It violated everything he stood for and believed in and for which he had risked his life these eight long years. Because as he understood it, he'd been fighting not merely to gain independence from Great Britain, but to allow the American colonies to do something that had never been done in the history of the world, govern themselves. There would be no dictatorship or monarchy, benevolent or otherwise. They would be truly free in a way no people had ever been free. This was what he, in these years, had been fighting for, for a new kind of liberty. And he knew that anything short of that was nothing less than failure. Simply to have another kind of monarchy and to have even the possibility of another kind of tyranny was no better than where they had been when the war began. It's quite clear from what he said to them that he was deeply disappointed that the officers under him didn't understand this. So I'm not going to read to you his speech, but it's worth tracking down. What strikes me is this. Washington seems so different from the politicians of our day and the political climate of our day. He talks about honor and glory to them. Today, everyone just seems obsessed with power, getting it, keeping it, using it, abusing it. But Washington sees a bigger picture. He has a vision for where things are going, and he's willing to make great sacrifices, even forfeit his own power to see it come to fruition. Now, I don't know everything about the man, but in this moment, there are really loud echoes of another leader who went to a cross for his, so his people could have freedom. 
So brothers, many of us love this country. Even with all our challenges, it is still an amazing place to live. But for many Christians, especially if we're older, it may not feel like the home that it once was. And if we feel more and more like exiles in America, if that's where things are going, know this. Our king has a track record of having great purposes for his people in exile. And perhaps the words of Jeremiah 29 are more relevant than ever. You see it on your handout. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If you take that seriously, I think one thing it means is as Christians, we should be model citizens because we worship the true king. We know the end of the story so we can live with confidence and purpose. We can pray for our leaders even when we disagree with them. We're actually called to. We can appropriately submit to the authorities that God has put in place. We can appropriately resist when God calls us to resist. We can remember that our king went to the cross. So we know if God is giving us any power and authority, He intends for us to use it, not for ourselves, but for others. And we should be model citizens because we're being transformed into the image of Christ. When Alexis de Tocqueville visited America in the 1830s, he was trying to figure out what made America so different from France. And he writes this, Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Now we're living in a different time, different moment, but Jesus is the same and we are still his church. So are we praying for revival? Are we praying that the Lord would actually make us different? Do we long for the church to be a foretaste of the world that is to come? To show the world something different because that's what the Lord has called us to be. And we should be model citizens because we're living for God's mission, not our own. Like Washington, we should see a cause so much bigger than us. Like men like Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, we should know that we have a role to play and it matters. It may unfold on the world stage, but it probably won't. It'll probably unfold right here in our backyard. So the question is, by his grace, will we be faithful where the Lord has called us? As we think about our political engagement, may the Lord give us grace to worship him, to be transformed into the image of Christ, and to be on his mission. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would, that you would help us. Lord, this is a difficult subject. We get really fired up about it. Lord, I pray that your word would help us to see clearly who we are and who we're called to be, and that you would show us what it looks like to faithfully be your people as you lead us. Lord, we pray that we would be a blessing to our country. Lord, we pray that we would uh, represent you and shine a bright light. Uh, We know that your church uh, has what the world is looking for in Jesus. I pray that the way we live and conduct ourselves would uh, adorn the gospel and be a, a bright witness to the world. Bless our conversations as we dig in. Lord, help us to be gracious. Help us to listen well. And Lord, transform us more and more into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.